Today on Paralysis to Purpose. I wish that I knew that who I was was okay, but I was constantly being changed from my hair to uh, the expectations of others and myself uh, that it didn't allow me to understand what my value was as a human being born the way that I was born. This is Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast with David Cooks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. Make sure you review this, like this, and share this podcast. I love my job because I get to interview some of the most intriguing and inspiring (laughs) people in the world. And today, I'm just telling you guys, all the way from the land down under, Australia, we got somebody today whose story, I don't know what twists and turns we're going to take today, <laughs> but put your seatbelt on. She is a retired anesthesiologist, Columbia and Yale educated, an author, a singer, a songwriter, a mother, an entrepreneur. She's a speaker. I mean, her story from paralysis to purpose mm-hmm. is like none, none other. And so you're in for a great treat. Dr. Sherry Hall is with us today on the podcast. And Sherry, welcome. I am, if you can't tell, I'm excited to have you here. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, David, so much. Hello to all your amazing listeners. I'm extremely excited to be here. So thank you for having me. Yeah, well, um, you've got a book called Perfect Love, uh, One Woman's Journey from Flesh to Faith. We're going to start because it is a great journey. I want to talk about you as a child. Uh, You grew up in upstate New York outside of Buffalo. Yes. um, You fell in love with the arts at a very early age. Can you talk about that in your family? And then we'll we'll go from there and get you through high school and all the way uh, to medical school. I was actually born in Buffalo, New York at what was Millard Fillmore Hospital. I think it's actually gone now. Um, to a Caucasian mother. And my father was African-American and Native American, a musician, and uh, had just come out of the army, had been a boxer in the army. And they met each other and fell in love in the early 1960s. If you can imagine, if you could kind of put yourself back in their position in the early 1960s, same time as Martin Luther King, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali winning the heavyweight title, Malcolm X, everything going on in America at that time. Young white girl, young black man falling in love and having two children. So your relationship with your father is a special one. Um, What would you say was the most significant uh, thing that he did or uh, how he most significantly impacted your life? It was the knowledge that I was universally and unconditionally loved for exactly the person that I was. That's a great thing. If that's, if, if that's the impacting thing, that's a great thing to have. Um, you um, 
you were pretty good in high school as an actor. Yeah. You played some really great roles and you, and you got going on that. But that also began, you were struggling with a lot of things as a high school student. Yes. And that began your uh, life in uh, drugs and sex and other things. Yeah. How were you, because you were able to continue to live a double life for- That's a great point of phrase, a double life, because I led a double life. There's no question about that. Yeah, and you, and you were able to manage that for a while. Um, and how, and what was the tension like, um, internally that you were dealing with? Wow. You know, I think through most of my teenage years, I probably thought about killing myself. And I say that a little bit jokingly now, because as I reflect on it, it's just so sad. I mean, it really makes me sad that as an, an adolescent, I felt that I was in a position already that I didn't want to be here, that the struggle was too great. Yet, on the flip side of this, there was this power and this desire to achieve and to be and to make an impact. I had this little, you know, devil on one shoulder, you know, angel on the other shoulder going for for decades in my life, decades. I think my struggles with my identity, <clears throat> my struggle with not having a father, my, my struggles at school, because school was a safe haven for me, but my home life was so difficult and, 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 and not easy for me to comprehend at that age that I had this internal battle going on. And my, my mother often described me being an angel at school and a devil at home, and she couldn't understand why that was happening. But there was this conflict brewing inside of me from a very early age, and I felt most of it was that I just wanted to be loved. I wanted to be loved for exactly who I was, and who I was was hiding deep, deep, deep inside me and was not the person that I felt that I was showing to the world on a daily basis. What's your most memorable high school play that you you were the lead in? Um, I have to say that the most memorable was doing Oklahoma uh, because it was really my first kind of starring role. So uh, you made it. You made it through high school, and you did very well. I, I you, did. you were a good student. Um, very good. And you got into Yale. And yes. I, and one of the things I think people think is that bright people, people who do well academically, that they don't have issues. No, they don't have things going on in their life. They're they're at Yale or they're at a private school somewhere. And, and that just wasn't the case. No, that definitely wasn't the case. And yes, I did get accepted to Yale. And I'm very proud that I'm a Yaley and then uh, subsequently on to Columbia University. Um, but uh, going to Yale uh, was part of the decision that I made. So we haven't really talked about the choice that I made. And this choice, the, the, the making of this, this promise that I made to myself when I was very little, because I grew up in, I won't say extreme poverty, but we were not well off. I mean, we were on welfare and the food stamps when I was a little girl. And, you know, I didn't have the clothes a lot of my peers had. And, you know, I remember eating hamburger helper a lot. <laughs> I don't know if you guys out there remember Hamburger Helper, right? <laughs> Hamburger Helper was a staple in our house. Um, but from a very, very early age, I knew that I wanted more opportunities. I knew that I felt 
um, I was disadvantaged coming from where I came from and not having the things that a lot of people around me had. So I made a decision at a very young age, David, that I was going to do more. I was going to be better. I was going to achieve wealth. And that if I did that, if I had more money, if I had prestige, if I had significance, if I had a title, well, then of course somebody would love me and I would be considered successful. And so I made a decision at a very early age that I was going to be a doctor. It was going to be a doctor, or a lawyer, or you know, a successful businesswoman, because those are the people who I saw driving Mercedes Benzes. And I thought that was important then. And um, making that decision um, caused me to stifle and bury a lot of creativity. And a lot of people might think, well, why is that such a big, you know, a big decision? She decided to be a doctor after all, that's a fantastic, noble profession. But for me, it was just part of living my duplicitous life where I wanted and knew in my heart and in my core this was the human being I was meant to be. These were the talents that I was given, the God-given talents that I was given. Yet I felt this need to put on this face for the rest of the world where I had to be bigger and better and brighter and smarter. So I made the decision to go through college and medical school. But all through university at Yale, my heart was pulling me to the stage. But I want to go back to your God-given God -given abilities and skills. Um, we talk about paralysis to purpose here. And yes. purpose, I believe, is you're born with purpose. I believe that there are things that you are given by God are things that are innately in us. Why do you think we run from that so much? Because it, it, there are many of us who run from that who did not have traumatic experiences like you had or came yeah. from difficult backgrounds. Do you have any thoughts on why it takes us so long to, to just accept who we are yeah, that we have. Um, I yes, I do. I believe um, it starts with self worth and value, and fear. Let's put all three of those together. So self worth, value, and fear. Um, I think at a very early age, as I was referring to before, children start to get molded and shaped by the environment around them, whether that's parents, teachers, friends, whoever, right? Uh, and now, oh my goodness, God forbid, social media, right? So they, children get shaped at a very, very early age. I think what was missing for me at a very early age was somebody nurturing and supporting and guiding me to what I was naturally gifted to do. Um, there's a lot of pressure to follow a certain routine in life, right? You get born, parents start educating you on what's right and what's wrong, what you can and can't do. You go to school, you know, by 10th grade, you have to already know what your career is in front of you. Flowers need time to grow and blossom. They need time to be nurtured and watered and drip fed so that they can learn to express the colors that they're supposed to shine out into the world and bring joy to the world. Um, I wish that I knew that who I was was okay, but I was constantly being changed from my hair to uh, the expectations of others and myself. Uh, that it didn't allow me to understand what my value was. 
um, why didn't I move forward in the direction of my talents? Uh, because I was afraid that I wouldn't be successful and that I wouldn't have enough money to survive. And money became a very important object for me because I didn't have the things that I saw everybody else around me having. When you do find out what it is that you were gifted to do, it's amazing how that gift will make room for you financially and otherwise. But when yes. you do come from a place of lack, you do come yes. from a place of poverty because poverty yes. is, is, a, is, a, is as much a, it is a mindset as yep. it is a bank account set. Yes. And, yes. and if that's what you're fighting, and you're, yes. and you're trying to get over that, the only way you can see getting past that that low line is to have an abundance way above it. Your days at the medical college were uh, high and low at the high same time. And high yeah. and low at the same time. And you ended up, um, you had a wake up call though. Um, I did. In, in medical did. college. And how did that wake up call Began you be you know all along as you read your book you had these little things happening that you were trying to I, make sense out of and you were like mm, you know something something's not quite right there's something no. inside of me that doesn't this isn't the way it's supposed to be going no. um, and so that voice began talking to you years before you answered it or answered him uh, yes whatever you want to say um, yes but what happened to you and and before you graduated. Uh, yeah, really start to shake you up a little bit. It did. And let's just talk about that voice for a minute, because um, as a teenager, actually, even before that, I started writing songs. So I started writing songs very early and writing songs for me became a way to express myself when words just simply weren't enough. For some reason, I was able to put in words and music what was really happening inside the life and soul and heart of Sherry Hall that I couldn't express um, in day-to-day -day life. And I attribute that to the higher divine self that's within me. Those were the words that was coming out of my music. So I, I will come back to that. But what happened in medical school um, <laughs> was the night before, that we we find out where we're going to go for our residency it's called match day right yep. we had something called super night and it was just a beautiful coming together of everybody there's all this anxiety and tension and excitement where are we going to go what what match place are we going to you know become what specialty are we going to go into well we did a big performance of course i'm up there on the stage with a bunch of my colleagues and 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 one of my friends during medical school jimmy he and I were doing a parody on anatomy class, and we were doing it to the song by Meatloaf called Bad Out of Hell. And at the end of the show, uh, Jimmy comes up to me, and you know, we've just done this great piece together on the stage. We're all sweaty and everything. And he's like, you know, Sherry, um, there's a lot of people in our class, I think, who would love to say something to you, but they're probably not. So I'm going to. I'm like, okay. And I'm actually thinking now this is, this is the, the, the bad Sherry Hall, the Sherry Hall without self-esteem, the Sherry Hall who doesn't think she's good enough. Right. I think he's going to say something like, you know, whatever, something bad. I'm not anticipating that he's going to say something great, but something, you know, bad, but he comes up to me and he gives me a big hug, like a genuine, loving, nurturing hug. And he says, I just want you to know that you being here 
made my life and the life of so many other people easier and better going through medical school. We could not have done this without you here, without you present, without you bringing, you know, your Sherry Hall flair, so to speak. And what's amazing about that moment, David, is that at the very moment I was thinking of ending it all, I cannot go through this torture in my head one more day, one more minute. Here comes this man who, by the way, used to be a divinity student, used to be a theology student before he came to medical school. He comes up and he touches me, but he touched me emotionally and spiritually. And he let me know that while I may have not felt that there was purpose and plan to my life, there was a much bigger purpose and plan to my being there that I had no knowledge of whatsoever. I want to end it. I want to throw in the towel. I want to jump off the subway platform. I want to, you know, drink and, and, and have indiscriminate sex on the street and, and take drugs. And yet here's this one person who comes up to me and says, we could not have done this without you here. I had a purpose of being there. I did do some good for the people with whom I came in contact on a daily basis. I did shine some light into someone else's life despite going through my own suffering and mental torturing. You've had people, and I'll call them partnerships, Jim, Jimmy was one, that yeah. were assigned to your journey at specific times to yeah. help, help you move forward. Absolutely. Um, that's what I love about life is that as tough as it can be, and it can be difficult, uh, you don't have to make the journey alone. I go forward with a new determination to be a good doctor and to not be a good doctor for the sake of the degree, the title, the significance, and the money, but to actually be a good human caring for other human beings. And uh, so my perspective is a little bit different as I'm going through my anesthesiology residency. So talk about perspective, right? You know, Jimmy, that was a turning point for perspective for me, right? I started to look at my decision to be a doctor in a different way. And, and, and it really did help me move forward in my career. We hope you're enjoying Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Paralysis to Purpose for more updates. Also, check out David's website at davidcookspeaks.com to learn more about his mission and purchase his book, Getting Undressed, From Paralysis to Purpose. Welcome back to Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. We're going to pick up here with uh, our guest, Dr. Sherry Hall. And uh, I think we wanted to begin the day um, and talk about the importance of touch for you as a person. And because that seemed to be a theme throughout the book and you, you were longing for a certain type of touch. But um, I'll let you explain the types of touches you were looking for and the types that you actually received. Yes. Uh, you know, touch is an amazing thing, isn't it? And when I think of touch, obviously, there's a lot of different themes that come up in this book. The, the subtitle of the book is One Woman's Journey from Flesh to Faith. 
most people's first thought is going to be flesh as in the physical. And indeed, I will caution readers, <laughs> there is a lot of physicality and intimacy in the book. I do put a disclaimer that the book is for mature audiences. I recommend 18 and above. So obviously, physical touch played a very big part in my life. But I think what I was really looking for was to be spiritually and emotionally touched, to be loved in an unconditional manner. And it took me decades to discern the difference between the two. Um, as we go back in time in the book, and I think I'm trying to actually remember, David, um, a time when I remember that loving touch from my mom. Now, I know that my mom loved me. I know that I was loved by both my parents uh, and my stepfather, but I do not recall a moment where I vividly remember in my life a loving, hugging, unconditional warmth from my mother, which is, which is a shame because I know it was there, but I probably blocked it out. My life, especially in the earlier half of my life, was filled with episodes of longing for that kind of touch, that kind of connection. And misinterpreting that need for spiritual, emotional touch as physical touch. And um, you will see uh, there are plenty of mistakes that I make in my life <laughs> uh, getting up to where I am now in search of that kind of touch. Um, when we talk about spiritual touch, I was touched spiritually by so many people uh, and a number of different characters, the cabman, the taxi man, uh, after I had a very traumatic um, interaction, physical interaction on the streets of New York. I was touched by a stranger in a taxi cab, uh, letting me know that I was okay and I actually was being watched over and guided. I just needed to recognize it. So yeah, touch played a huge part in my life and still does to this very day. So you've had angels in your life all along. And and like you said, you may not have recognized it right away, but in, in, in hindsight, you're like, there's one, there's one, there's one. Yeah, yeah. Even, even the, the, the um, homeless elderly woman in the subway station, um, she touched me in a way that changed my perspective on the frailty of humanity. Um, what I might just say to the listeners is touch isn't necessarily obvious, and you have to be open and receptive to receiving that touch, um, whether you're in business, whether you're a mother, whether you're talking about a stranger that you meet on the street. Um, we're human beings. Human beings crave connection. And we hope that that connection is inspiring, uplifting, uh, and indeed inspirational um, and helpful and nurturing. But you have to be open to receiving that. I think especially in the times of the pandemic, right? <laughs> when we're all socially isolated and keeping our distance, you know, 1.52 meters away from people, nobody wants to touch anybody anymore. Um, and uh, there's something really genuine and beautiful about a handshake and about a hug and about an eye contact. Um, and again, a spiritual or emotional touch that you give another human being so let, let's pick up where we left off you were you were um now in australia you had yes you have you have worked all over i mean you're you're i have our your credentials are impeccable and yes. so you were able to come to australia and yeah. settled there for a while and this is where you got married 
And let's talk about that that relationship, uh, the, the the birth of your two children. Yes. And, and then from there, we're going to talk about um, how you moved around and you did different mm. things in search of things. Mm. And eventually, we're going to get to someone named Paul. You yeah. call Paul the apostle. Yeah, for so many reasons. So yeah. Reasons. So uh, let's go to your your back to Australia the first time. Yeah, so I did. I got a fantastic job opportunity in Australia. Now, I was in Florida at a practice where there was a cardiac surgeon that we were not getting well. We were not getting along well. And, uh, and also, I was in a very toxic relationship with an alcoholic at that time and uh, got a call uh, from a company in Australia that hired me over the phone, which I was very grateful for because I was looking for an escape. Uh, it's not the first time that I've run away from things in my life. So, um, you know, I do have staying power, guys. <laughs> I am able to commit and go for the long haul. I mean, I did become a doctor after all. Uh, but I also had a habit of fleeing situations that I found that I couldn't extricate myself from. I would run from them. And uh, that's actually in one of my songs on my most recent album called Stay. The very first line talks about how I'm constantly running, just waiting for someone to asked me to stay. Um, but uh, I got married and uh, the man that I married was uh, in a similar situation to me, right? He was in his mid-30s, extremely attractive, <laughs> uh, had this sexy Aussie accent, was looking for a wife. He made it very clear to me on our first meeting that he just wanted to meet a wife and spend someone you know spend time with somebody for the rest of his life in a very easy life. He was kind of a nature boy. And um, I, I gravitated to him. Uh, it, was, it was almost a love at first sight thing. Mind you, remember the mindset that I'm coming from. I've just left a toxic relationship. I've just left my home country. I've just left a job where I was desperately unhappy. And here's this sexy Aussie dude smiling at me saying, I just want to find someone to marry. It was a fairy tale meeting and a fairy tale wedding. And we got married within four months after meeting each other. Well, I mean, yeah. it, it seemed like everything was in place. It seemed like everything was in place, but I'm going to clue you into something. And this is for the listeners. When someone tells you something about themselves, even if they say, oh, I'm just kind of joking. If someone says something to you and they put it out into words, they're probably speaking their truth, okay? And you actually need to listen to that. I cannot tell you how many times I have given people the benefit of the doubt over and over and over again. And they keep coming back to that very first time that I met them and something that they said to me that showed their true character. And that's important. That's all called trusting your gut, trusting your intuition. Really, you know, it's good. To, I believe in giving people second chances. I believe in getting to know people. But you may find, and this is going to tickle you in a place deep inside, and you're just going to feel like, something's not quite right about this. <laughs> you need to listen to that voice because I'll tell you what, in the very, very early years of my marriage, my first husband let me know in no uncertain terms that this relationship was not going to work. Um, he has a narcissistic personality. 
um, not a good communicator, um, has a very um, kind of dictatorial way of doing things. It was his way or the highway. And I mean that in the true sense of the word, either you, you joined in his camp and you supported him and believed him and did what he wanted to do, or it was hell in the household. Um, but I have staying power in some things and I was desperately searching for love. I have always wanted to be married. I'm, I'm a kind of a traditional girl. Okay. I don't know. I know I don't seem like I'm a traditional girl, David. Right. You know, cause I'm, Oh, I'm very independent and I fly all over the world and I've got these multiple careers and streams of income and stuff like that. But when it comes down to it, I wanted to be married and I wanted to be in a lifetime relationship with somebody. And finally, now I felt I had this opportunity. It ended up being an extremely dysfunctional marriage. We did uh, have two beautiful children who are amazing and, and wonderful today. Uh, but that relationship nearly cost me my soul and my self-esteem to the point where my mother said she didn't even recognize me at one point when she came to visit me. Wow. So after you came to grips with this is not working. It's yes. Going to work. Yeah. You, you moved on. Uh, as I best, did as, as best you can, given as you best have, I could. As yes, we have family now. You have daughters. Yeah. And you've got. We a, owned property together. I, we have two children together. Um, obviously, I've been living now in Australia for many, many, many years. There were so many reasons why I should have left sooner. Um, I could have left before we had children. Like <laughs> I had the opportunity if I'd just woken up to what he was actually revealing to me about himself and saying to me, but I was in such desperate need. And, um, you know, I guess still working on my own sense of self-esteem and who I was and my sense of value, self-worth. Um, I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be married. I wanted to think that everything was okay and that I could stay married, unlike my mother or other people that I'd seen in my life. I wanted to be married for life. I believe in the institution of that kind of a partnership. Um, so that part of it was failure, right? I was afraid to fail. I can do anything. I told myself that for so many years. If I could you know, persevere through becoming a doctor and a cardiac anesthetist, I can stay in my marriage. And I worked very, very hard at it, but I was the only one working at it. And like you said, mm. once, there, once it's revealed, mm. take the love glasses off. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. See it for yeah. what it is and understand that it's okay if this yeah. is not the one. It's okay. Yeah. I don't, uh, you know, David, there's a, I do have a, a you know, a bachelor's in uh, psychology and biology, right? So, so I do know a little bit about the mind, but, uh, it's taken me decades to try to figure out my own mind and what would make a strong, independent, intelligent woman stay in an abusive relationship for a decade. How does that happen? Now, I wasn't physically abused, um, but there was a lot of verbal abuse uh, in that relationship in front of my children, uh, which was also devastating for them and scars them to this very day. Um, so how, why wasn't I able to get myself out of that? I'm still trying to figure that out, but eventually I could, which I guess is the good news. We, we find a way out. We find a way out. Uh, I wish I could have done it sooner, though. Yeah. Well, hey, you, you leave Australia, you go back yeah. to the 
I mean, you, you don't have trouble getting the job. That's one thing. Oh. No, no, I, I've got the pedigree. And you know what? Here's here's another little tip for your, your listeners is that um, it's okay to move around jobs, especially in this new age that we're in, especially the age, the digital age where people are getting hired and doing work from home and stuff like that. However, at some point, it does become a disadvantage to you. <laughs> because if you look at my CV, uh, you'll see that pretty much every year or every other year, I was moving around and accepting a new job. It's not that I was cap wasn't capable. I'm a very good doctor and was a brilliant anesthesiologist, but I was unhappy. So, uh, you know, for me, after about the sixth job, uh, on my resume, while it was a stellar resume, and I have worked all over the world in some of the greatest institutions like Walter Reed, uh, you know, in DC, our military hospital there. Um, at some point, you have to start asking questions like, you know, why can't you stay in a job for more than three years? I think the longest I stayed in one place was four years. And that that was, you know, when I was settled down, you know, in Hawaii. So, um, yeah, at some, at some you, said, time. you mentioned Hawaii. Let's talk about Hawaii because one of your angels and yeah. this began to have real reflection, I believe, was in Hawaii. Yes. And you you were you met someone named Pastor Brian. Brian, yeah. So the situation here was I was actually having physical ailments in my body because of the anxiety and stress that I was under, under work, in my marriage, with my children, uh, building houses. We were being quite entrepreneurial, my first husband and I. We were building, buying land, building houses, and that was really his thing. But I supplied the money, the income to be able to do that because I was making quite a large income at that time. But the pressure was intense where I was working. There was a lot of internal strife in the anesthesia department where I was. And of course, I'm very unhappy, right? I'm internally unhappy. Outside, I'm, you know, perfect mom, perfect doctor, you know, trying to maintain my marriage and, and, and this business of building houses that we have. Uh, but inside, I was still struggling desperately. And I started to develop a cardiac arrhythmia. So I would be in the operating room and feel my heart start racing. There were even a couple of times I'd take the leads uh, off the machine before bringing my patient into the room and put them on myself. And on the screen, I'd see my heart racing at 220, 230 beats per minute, almost to the point where I was about to faint. Um, and this was happening regularly. And at some point I was advised that, well, I had to have a procedure called an ablation which is where they stick a probe inside your heart and burn a little bit of your heart tissue to try to get rid of that spot that's causing that abnormal, potentially lethal rhythm, right? So nobody really wants to have a, a probe stuck in their heart and burn part of your heart. But um, I was really going through a crisis there. This was happening a lot. I was trying to care for patients and this is happening to me while I'm in the operating room. So um, I had a moment and, and talk about God touching you, right? I had a moment, I was driving in Hawaii and I happened to go by this little yellow church. Um, I'm not a real church person. <laughs> I love God and he's in me, but I'm not a real church goer. And I felt compelled to pull into this church. And I just found myself there knocking on the door, the side door, and this little entry in this wooden church uh, in Hilo, Hawaii. And uh, there was this beautiful man named Pastor Brian who invited me in and could see that I was distressed. 
in his office, I poured out my soul and told him how afraid I was of getting on the table to have this procedure done. I was so fearful. What would happen to my children if I wasn't here anymore? You know, how is their father ever going to be able to manage? He can't manage me and our marriage and, and communicate with me. How is he going to manage raising two young little girls um, and, and work? And the stress was overwhelming. But Pastor Brian touched me. Not only did he listen to me, he put his hand on my hand. He gave me a Bible. He prayed for me and prayed over me like no one has ever done before. And in that moment, I felt the presence of God. I felt that no matter what happened to me, I had to get on that table. I had to have that procedure. And no matter what the outcome was, I felt that my children were going to be safe, that they had a father that was there, would look over them, would protect them, and would help guide them through the rest of their life. And that was Pastor Brian who helped me receive that message on that day, so much so um, that I found the strength and the courage to move forward and try and heal at least part of my heart. And, and as powerful as that moment was, and as powerful as that story was, it was a moment. It was a moment. It was a moment. You weren't transformed yet. No. But it, it, it had a powerful impact and a positive impact on you. It did. You ended up leaving Hawaii, heading back to the yeah. and working and doing things. And, yeah. you, and you found yourself, I, I, I want to read something from your book. And okay. it says, my heart wasn't in it and hadn't been for years. And as an anesthesiologist, how could I care for the heart of my patients if I didn't have my my own heart in it. Yes. So you you were bouncing from job to job. Yeah. Doing your thing. Your heart's not in it. Yeah. You, you end up being let down by a number of men. Uh, yeah. Relationships that you had. Just touch on that a little bit because you were still reaching out for the right touch. Yes. Yes, I was. And, and after my marriage and um, I haven't spoken to a lot of women who have been in relationships like I've been in. I know there's more, they're all over the place, right? Women have been in dysfunctional and abusive and men too. I'm not, you know, just talking about the single, the feminine sex, but you know, men have been abused by their spouses as well. So uh, people who have been in, in dysfunctional relationships. Um, but when I finally did get out of that marriage, I was lost. I, I was a shell of my former self in terms of my confidence and my sense of self-worth and my self-esteem. And I did go from one successive relationship after another that ended up being horrible for me. Um, again, here we are talking about a smart, a really bright woman <laughs> allowing herself to be in some really bad situations. And this is after my marriage. So I didn't have, the, I guess, the confidence or the willingness to, again, listen to those cues. You were going from one failed relationship to the next. Yes. And it was unfulfilling. And you found yourself being more frustrated and aggravated yeah. as each, with each successive relationship. Yeah. And then also we were talking about my heart in anesthesia. And um, this, this is really important. I know that a lot of people are not in life and death situations every single day in their careers. Um, still, you may be a decision maker in your career and you may be impacting people's lives, their lives and their livelihood on a daily basis. Well, obviously that is to the extreme and what I did. 
as an anesthetist, we have someone's life in our hands multiple times a day. And um, it takes a lot of trust for another human being to sign their name on a piece of paper and say, yeah, doc, here you go, take care of me for the next couple of hours, take care of my soul, take care of my physical body and my being. And that's what we do as anesthesiologists. That's extremely stressful and, and really anxiety provoking and on a number of different levels. But for me, uh, there were so many times in my 24 year career where I'd walk into that operating room with such a degree of anxiety because not because I wasn't capable and because I couldn't do what I needed to do to take care of this life that I had now in my hands, but because the fear of what happens if I just check out for one second? I mean, things can happen like in, in an instant in the operating room, like they can in a plane. If you think about an anesthesiologist being like a pilot, there's a period of time when you're on autopilot and everything's kind of cruising, but disaster can strike at any minute. And there were several times I had that realization. It's like, I can't be half in it. I can't even be 90% in it. I need to be 100% engaged 100% of the time that I've been given the responsibility of another person's life in my hands. And when I started to realize that I really wasn't there, I started to take a step back from my career in a big way you know, going from full-time, you know, all-out anesthesiologist to part-time to doing easier kinds of cases on healthy patients, not the really sick, critically ill patients. And, uh, you know, really from the time I got divorced to this very day, every year I stepped back just a little bit more until eventually I ended up retiring from medicine. So yeah. music has always been a part of, what, of, of your life. It's uh, my heart and soul, David, my and heart and during soul. During this time of pulling back, you met someone uh, who was a musician. Yes. Uh, Mitchell, I believe is his name. Yes. And um, and that relationship took on a, a life of its own. Um, it and, did. And it, it, it was, and it was birthed in the music thing. And then it and, was. And then his ability to give you the attention you were looking for. Yes. When you met Mitch, but he wasn't the first real love of your life when it comes to music no when you were studying uh at columbia mm. that's when you first met paul uh, but he was instrumental then and yeah. and identifying in you what he thought you really should be doing yes I remember you he he tried to convince you to not go into medicine right when you were graduating Yes. So both him and Julian, uh, Julian is the first producer I met who introduced me to Paul. And interestingly enough, when I was recording that demo that we all like to do, our first recording that we want to give to the world, uh, I was on the verge of making a critical decision, which was, do I stay in New York and, and continue on something that I was starting that, to get traction on, you know, which is the life of Sherry Hall singer-songwriter, the, the life that I was very passionate about, or do I fulfill the promise that I made to that little 10 year old girl saying, I'm going to be this big career doctor that's loved and respected and, and significant in the world and make a lot of money. And uh, I made the decision to leave New York and to go and pursue that career. And we know how that ended up. But Paul reappears in my life. So yes, I was dating. Well, in my head, I was dating Mitchell. 
And I do say in my head, because I think he looked at it a little bit differently. I thought we were like a mirror image of each other. I actually thought this was it. This is my match, you know, and, and it didn't turn out that way. But during that time, music becomes front and center in my life again. Uh, the music that Mitchell created was beautiful and sensual and exciting. And, and it, it was stirring up in me a lot of emotions. Now, mind you, I'd started writing songs about my marriage already. And um, one day, and this is the beauty of Facebook, guys. So, you know, for those of you who do engage in social media to keep up with people in your past, this is a pretty cool thing that actually happened. One day, um, there was a message that came to me and said, oh, you know, hey, is this the Sherry Hall who I recorded piano for in a studio back in New York like 15 years ago? And I was like, wait a minute, is this the Paul that was playing piano for me? And, I think, and before you know it, we reconnected on Facebook after years of not saying a word to each other. And it turns out that this man had now traveled all over the world, had all these people. And at this point, he was playing for the B-52s. And um, they were coming to the Washington, D.C. area, which is where I lived at that time. And he invited me with a VIP backstage pass to come and see the B-52s. Well, Paul and I uh, got together and uh, had a little tete-a-tete -tete to meet again and to reconnect over the past 15 years of our life. We shared our life story over a drink at Legal Seafood Foods in Tyson's Corner in Virginia. And that led to Paul asking me, have you written any songs lately? Just like that, a simple question. Have you written any songs lately? I'm like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I've got some crappy little, you know, recordings on my phone because then I can start recording things on my phone, right? We've got these crazy little things called smartphones now. And uh, I had some little piano, guitar, vocal stuff on my phone. And he says, let me listen. And I'm like, no way, man. <laughs> you've been all over the world. You're a professional musician now. You know, you're touring with the B-52s. No way you're listening to my little crappy demos. Self-esteem here, right? My stuff is not worthy now of this professional musician. It was worthy 15 years ago when he was just a piano player, but now he's out there. And uh, Paul listened to my music in his hotel room. We went back to his hotel room. He put little headphones in like the ones I have on now. And he listened to my little crappy recordings on my phone. He looked at me with an intensity and a love and acceptance that I had not seen in so many years. And he just looked at me and he said, you're ready to record an album. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I'm just gonna burst out laughing. And he goes, no, Sherry, he goes, listen, I loved your music back then and I love it now. And you have something that's worthy of sharing and I wanna help you record it. I wanna produce it for you. And that was one of the, maybe the second time now in my life that my music had been validated by someone who I felt was worthy of ordaining that validation upon me. And um, that changed my life. That was the beginning, the beginning of the revelation to me of who Paul would be in my life in the years to come. Wow. So it, it goes past the music piece. I mean, he yeah. actually affirms you. Yes. You feel like, okay, you know what? I can do this. Uh, yeah. I can be successful at it. This guy says, yes. as you yeah. got to know him, yeah. um, I, the, the title of this chapter in your book is called The Apostle. 
Yes. And, and as I started realizing like the apostle, you know, yeah. there's no apostle in this chat. What's she talking about? Yeah. As you got to know Paul mm. and, and his own journey, because he was on a journey of his own. He was. A yes. Of, a lot of interesting um, similarities, things you all could share. Yes. What, what was that one thing that would that he had that he shared with you that was that got you from the fork in the road onto this road that you're on now? Paul was definitely an apostle in my life. Paul touched me and healed me in ways that every single song that we recorded, every single musical line of of the the, the three and a half, three albums, I'll say, I'll say two, two and a half, three albums that Paul and I worked on together out of my four. Um, but Paul every day had something that he said to me, somehow that he touched me through the music, some interpretation of the melodies that I brought into the world that brought me closer to a spiritual awakening. He more so than any person in my life. If you ever listen to Sherry Hall music out there, listeners, if you listen to Sherry Hall music, I, I ask you to follow along the journey with me. They're more than just songs. And I'm not saying that because I'm a songwriter and I want you to buy my music. I'm saying that, and it may not be for everybody, but if you listen to song number one on Perfect Love and you listen to song number 12, which is called Journey, on my last album, Hope, there is a transformation that takes place in there that I only hope I can bestow onto every single person that I come in contact with who has an opportunity to share that journey and that message with me. Uh, and Paul was that person for me who said, God is in your life. He has always been there. If you don't see it, you are not opening up your eyes. You need to accept and invite him into your life because he's there waiting for you. And he has always been there. You had already had an encounter with Paul. I had. And, many, yes. and, and you were um, still on this journey. You were yes. trying to yeah. fig figure things out. In fact, yeah. You are still receiving counseling. Absolutely. After, um, and after your encounter with Paul and with Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah. Can you share that with us? I think sometimes people believe. Absolutely. That, you know, once you have an encounter with God, that. Um, that everything's know, okay, right? Okay. And yeah. we talked about it. I, you know, sometimes sometime it's suddenly and a lot of times it's process. Yes, and that's right. Either or, but yours was a process. Mine was definitely a process. There's no question about that, David. And I think, you know, as, as people go through life, you're going to find that you make a decision about something, you, you buy into it, you're hook, line, and sinker, you're 100%. New Year's resolution, I'm there, I'm going to get fit and healthy and strong and, and get to a right size body. This is it. This is the time. But what happens, like, a couple weeks later, there's temptation after temptation after temptation. This is, I think, the essence of the journey from flesh to faith. And when I talk about flesh, I'm not just talking about physical flesh. I'm talking about living a materialistic, human, 
worldly life, this life, this present time that we have on earth, right? This flesh existence, you know, Adam, right? We're the Adam, we're the, we're the universal Adam, right? Versus a more spiritual life, a heart-led life, uh, um, a spirit-guided life. Um, there's, there's a difference there. And there are these forces around us, call it the environment, call it the news, call it the media, call it the sweet treats that are on the table at work every single day when you walk in there, uh, your family, uh, friends taking you out, you know, and oh, let's just go out to dinner. Oh, let's have a glass of wine. No, no, I'm on a diet. You know, I'm really doing well. Oh, no, it's okay, honey. You can just have a little, right? There's tempters in your life. There's forces outside of you uh, that are constantly trying to get you to change your mind and trying to get you to go back into something that is actual hell for you, um, right? People are constantly being drawn back into their own mental slavery, right? How many times did I try to pull myself out of medicine, but I was drawn back, drawn back by the lure of the money, the prestige, the significance, right? I could go on and on and on. It was the same thing with my journey to Christ. Yes, I go to church. Yes, I've got Paul and Pastor Brian and Jimmy and the cab man and all these people in my life showing me there is a God. There is a God. There's actually a God for me in my life. But there's still life is happening every single day around me, trying to pull me away from that perfect love that I know that I was searching for. You got fired one last time. What? What? what how did you deal with that? You all of a sudden now you are yeah. you are you are literally pushed to the point of yeah. having to make a decision. Exactly, and isn't that the way of life? right? Isn't that the way that it happens? We, we sit on that little painful pebble in our foot, right? It's about the dog um, sitting there with a the pebble in his foot until it gets so uncomfortable, right? We get up, we move around, we change positions, we go lay back down. Ouch, it hurts, but I can do it. I can take it. We go on, we go on to the point where it's festering and infected and telling you, this is not the life that you are being called to. Girl, wake up. When? How many times do I have to take you through this process before you listen to me? And that's what this was. This was a serious wake-up call. I'd been working at, you know, this amazing military medical center in our nation's capital for almost four years. And... Um, was assured up until the last day uh, that my contract was going to be renewed. I was working as a, an, an independent contractor, so I had an annual contract as a civilian working in the military hospital. And uh, yeah, they had assured me, yeah, yeah, you're fine. Everything's good. Everything's going to be fine. Well, it wasn't fine. And uh, as things happened, my contract did not get renewed. And here I was now again in a situation where I'm living the life now, man, David, I'm living large, right? Got a beautiful house in a very prestigious DC suburb, driving a fancy luxury car, uh, you know, got my kids going to great schools and in every kind of lesson possible, basketball, sending them to Stanford tennis camps and taking, you know, really expensive holidays, you know, uh, and things like that. Living, living the life I've always dreamed of. And I get fired from the job that's providing me this life. 
I had to sit with it for a while and literally talk about paralysis to purpose. I think this is the clincher right here. I had to allow myself to sit in a state of inertia for about three to four months. And I couldn't do anything. I didn't know what to do. I applied for a couple of jobs during that period. Guess what? Nobody would hire me. It's the first time in my life I could not get a job. I apply for jobs all over the DC metropolitan area. How many anesthesiologists work in the DC metropolitan area? Surely somebody wants Dr. Sherry Hall from Yale and Columbia. Nobody would hire me. And um, okay, so I'm listening, right? I'm starting to listen. <laughs> I get fired from my job, can't get another one, live in this multi million dollar lifestyle now that I actually can't support. And um, finally, it gets to be almost maybe four months into it. And it's my youngest daughter, my little one, Nikki, who turns to me and she says, Mama, like, why don't we just go back to Australia? And I'm like, hmm, why would we do that? <laughs> like, that wasn't even on my radar at that time. I was not even thinking, you know, let's go back to Australia. Um, but uh, I, with a discussion with my older daughter, who was just entering high school, uh, you know, and kind of getting her to accept the idea of going back and leaving her really good friend group and her tennis and all this other stuff, we actually made the decision to come back to Australia. Well, the inertia and the paralysis doesn't end there. When I came back to Australia, we found a little rental that had a view, this beautiful view of the entire Sunshine Coast of Queensland. And for almost a full year, I sat still. Hmm. I didn't get another job. I was a mother. I took my kids to school, brought them home, sat on my deck and stared out into the sky for hours at a time, day after day after day. Uh, prior to that move, as you mentioned before, I was going through counseling. I had a wonderful, talk about another one of the angels in my life, family therapist, who's trying to help me sort through all my personal issues, as well as how I was being a mother to my children. Because you can imagine with such inner turmoil going on in my own head, it's hard to be a perfect mom, raising two young girls on your own and working uh, at the same time, and, and trying to maintain a sense of stability and sanity. And, and I had times when I flew off the handle. I had times where my temper was out of control. Um, my kids were out of control. Like everything was falling apart. And so I did seek professional guidance. I needed someone else to talk to. I needed somebody to bounce things off of. I needed a sane, impartial third party to look into the scenarios I was pulling myself into and say, hey, have you ever thought about this? Or when you did this, did you reflect on this then and think, was there a different way that you could have done it? Going through therapy and going through counseling does not mean that you're weak. It actually means that you're intelligent to realize that you can't handle something on your own and it's okay to seek help and guidance. It could save your life as well as the lives of people whose care is entrusted to you. Uh, and so, that period of silence was absolutely essential in me listening mm. and finding what was I really meant to be doing in this moment in my life. Wow. Yeah, you know, sometimes we just got to stop. And, and you know what? 
if we don't choose to stop, life will cause yeah. you to stop you. And yeah. you'll, you'll have to listen and pay attention. Absolutely. One, one of the great metaphors in this book happened right before you got ready to leave DC. When you had a pet animal that knocked over a glass of water onto your laptop. Yeah. And it destroyed everything that you yes. had. Yes. Everything that you had now. Now the last little bit of evidence of yesterday. Yes. Was now gone. If you choose to make this step and to take this journey, you have to leave things behind. You've got to step out of that self that you were and step into a new life, a new creation. And I was on the verge of being able to do that, but I still wasn't committed. I still didn't take the leap, right? Well, here's my beautiful little puppy dog. Now, mind you, I got to set the scene. I'm sitting on the floor of an empty house. I've sent my kids ahead to Australia to live with Rebecca while I'm selling everything selling the car, selling the furniture, clearing the house, getting ready to move back to Australia. And uh, I'm sitting on the floor in the middle of my, what was my dining room. There's a mattress, my drink by my laptop and my laptop. And I'm just tidying up the ends. It's a couple of days before I'm getting on the plane. Ozzy, my little puppy's getting ready to go to a new home. My two kitty cats. Well, Ozzy's running around the house chasing the cats, chasing a ball, just doing her thing, being a puppy before she's waiting for her new owners to come and pick her up. I'm sitting on the floor in front of my laptop. And what happens? Ozzy knocks that cup over right onto my laptop. Now, mind you, I hadn't backed up anything. The screen went to gray. And in the center of it was a question mark. I made four or five different calls that day. And none of them uh, felt optimistic about retrieving the information that was on the laptop. Mind you, I had my photos, um, music files, uh, documents, um, medical information, certificates, you know, everything is on my computer, right? And it was wiped clean. Wiped clean. The slate was wiped clean. Well, I want to read this paragraph. Okay. And it's right during this situation. It said... But then it dawned on me, things in that moment were exactly as they were supposed to be. The slate had been wiped clean. And there I was, just me, myself, and I, heart and soul, bared before God, who had given me a gift, a chance for a new beginning, a new life, and a new start. With all that you had gone through, yeah. all of the, the, from childhood to, to the present day, the bad relationships, the divorces, the divorce, the, all of that, the ups and the downs, the traveling, the moving, the counseling, the disappointment, the alcohol, all those things that you went through were to get you to that point for your pet to knock that water over for yeah. you for you to understand yeah. that that day 
was the beginning of a new day for you, the day that you had been looking for. What a story of paralysis to purpose. <laughs> like I actually get tears in my eyes right now as I think about that moment because it really was in every way devastating. Like I thought, oh my God, like everything is gone. But in a second, I flipped that switch to say, yes, everything's gone. I have a moment. This is it. This is, this is the time right here, right now. I can start again as a new creation. I have been given an opportunity. I've been given a mulligan, a do-over, right? You, you literally survive things that I, you know, and mentally, physically, and otherwise, that yeah. you were sustained for a miracle. Yeah. You were sustained for that miracle moment. And, you know, what, what a great, it, this is a great story. And look, you're not perfect, and we know that. And no. You, you know, and you're still on your journey. You're still figuring things out. But, yeah. you're, but you're nowhere near in the same place you were. No. When I, when I started reading this book. No, I'm not. And if I could, I know we're coming to a close here, but I would like to tell people where I am now, if that's it's okay. Good. And who are you now? Yeah. And, and what's interesting about that is um, I still find myself flipping back into Dr. Sherry Hall every once in a while, especially when I watch the news, which I try not to do very often because there's so much stuff going on in the world and the health world and the pandemic and stuff like that. So I do find myself flipping back into Dr. Sherry Hall. I have a very simple life now. I retired from medicine. I finally hung up my stethoscope. And the day that I did that was one of the happiest days of my life. Um, I'm grateful for what I was able to do and contribute in the world as a physician uh, and all the achievements I was able to accomplish, but I'm very, very happy to not be in that position anymore. I work part-time a couple of hours a week at an aged care home, still taking care of people, but the way I take care of my beautiful elderly residents is I sing to them. So I have a little singing group uh, that I run with them where they come to every week. It's the highlight of their week. And it's just me and them, me playing my guitar and them singing along songs with me. I um, run a prayer group there every other week. And it's not a Bible study, but it's more that I will find something in their lives that they've brought to me, find some references and, and scripture or verses in the Bible that I can apply to their life and give them a spiritual interpretation of what's happening in their everyday life. And we have a discussion and then might sing after that. Uh, and that's how I spend part of my time. I continue to write and assist other women to write their story by running workshops uh, at a place called the She Shed. Uh, where I run a workshop called Write Your Story so that I help other people find their own voice. And I guess the most important thing is, actually the second most important thing, is that I have a beautiful man in my life uh, and I'm going to get married. Uh, my relationship with this beautiful man is exactly what I always imagined uh, a lifetime partnership could be. And then, of course, the most important thing, the most important thing 
is um, I walk with Jesus every day. I spend time in the word. I spend quiet time alone, um, contemplating my life, contemplating the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life and filled with so much gratitude, so much gratitude every single day. I, I don't carry the title Dr. Sherry Hall, but I can tell you that I'm happier than I've ever been in the world. I'm finally doing what I love, continuing to share and heal and help others in my own little Sherry Hall kind of way. And um, obviously sharing my music and, and the words of my book with the world in the hope that perhaps there's just one person uh, that I touch, just one. I, I just have one more thing to say, David, because I work in an aged care home and, and I see people coming to work, right? People come to work every day. For your listeners out there who are in a job, whether you love the job or hate the job, okay, you're, you're in a job, you're making your way through the world, you're earning a living, you're supporting your family, you're doing what you have to do, right? Please remember that you are here for a purpose. You are here for a reason. You may have gone through paralysis like I did. You may not yet know what your purpose is, but you do have a purpose. When you walk in that door for your job, when you wake up in the morning and you step into your life for the day, step into it knowing there is a purpose behind your steps for that day. You may not know what it is. It could be as simple as you saying hello to the checkout person at the supermarket who's having a really crap day, but your smile has shined a little light into their life. Be kind to people. Do the best possible job that you can do every single day. Respect others and try to spread the love. That is the only way that we're going to make it as a, as a species, as humanity, is if we spread the love. You may not think that what you're doing is special or significant, but it is. I'm telling you, you are walking with a purpose, even though you don't know it. So please remember that as you go through your day today. Well, Sherry, um, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, what's, yeah. what's the best way for them to hear your message, have you visit them? Um, yeah. How do we get a hold of you? I'm very easily contactable. So, you know, we have social media these days. Uh, I do have a personal social media page, which is just, you know, Sherry Hall. I also have a, a, a public page, which is also Sherry Hall, but it's Sherry Hall singer songwriter or at Sherry Hall Life at Sherry Hall Life on Facebook and Instagram. And lastly, you can visit my website and send me a message right on the website, which is www.sherryhall.com. Fantastic. Until next time on Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. This is David Cooks reminding you that your ability to endure is always greater than your willingness to endure. You can do anything you put your mind to. Thanks for tuning in to Paralysis to Purpose. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Paralysis to Purpose on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. To purchase his book, visit davidcooksspeaks.com. Be sure to tune in next time for more inspiring conversations with David Cooks.
I consider myself a survivor of gun violence because, you know, and, and now I take people within that, but I always feel like, you know, the person that tried to take my life gave me life. Next time on Paralysis to Purpose. And I never started living until I lost something. Paralysis to Purpose.